<laughs> uh, this little thing here, I keep wanting to hit it. <laughs> it's like a bug. <laughs> yeah, they wire you up these days, I guess, huh? Uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 11, and this will this is kind of be our uh, launching pad for this morning uh, to, to kind of set our stage for what we're going to discuss. Uh, the title might seem a little odd, uh, The Real Jesus, but as we move through this uh, lesson, whatever you want to call it this morning, we'll hope, hopefully we'll develop this. And, and my, my goal in this is that this might be some practical truths for you in your own Christian life. Uh, I know I've had many experiences witnessing to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, we had a, a kingdom hall around the corner from us. It's now a pizza place, amen? But uh, that's, that's good. Uh, but I used to get them all the time. And instead of slamming the door in their face, I always would talk to them. And so uh, it, it caused me to really dive into the scriptures. What does the Bible really teach? How, how can I really defend the deity of Christ? And how do we as Christians defend that Christ truly is both God and man in completeness? That God has taken on humanity. We talk about the incarnation of Christ. I mean, these are really deep things, and we might not always understand them or how they can be, but that's not our job. That's not our problem. We take the Bible and we believe the Word of God, whether we can understand every detail of it or not. And so we want to let God be true and every man a liar, like Romans 3 verse 4 says. And so I want to look at this, and and I would encourage you to follow me as I go through these texts. Don't be afraid to mark your Bibles and highlight things. Now, I'm going to go through quite a few passages, and Lord willing, you can keep up with me. Normally, I grab a passage and I do a little exposition there and move on. But this morning's really going to be different, and so uh, bear with me. I want to get through this. My goodness, I got 45 minutes, brother, and I hope I can do a lot here with it. So in 2 Corinthians, turn there with me and... Uh, um, most of us here are familiar with uh, Paul's writings and we're, we're familiar with these passages, but sometimes we don't always put them together, uh, to, you know, in a defensive way, in an apologetic way to defend the faith. And, of course, the scriptures tell us in 1 Peter 3.15 that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man that asks of the reason of the hope that is in you. And that includes Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses. Now, to be practical, I'm going to come from a Jehovah's Witness uh, position as I argue out these texts. And I do that because of my familiar, familiarity with Jehovah's Witnesses. And it'll help you kind of solidify these doctrinal truths in your, own, in your own minds. And Lord willing, you'll be able to use them in a practical way. Because remember, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to you, they really believe they are bringing you the truth. They think you are the ones in falsehood, and they have the truth that can deliver you. And, of course, we know they don't, and so we want to be able to give them the truth. We want to be able to defend our position, not because, you know, this is something we conjured up and believed, but this is something that the Bible teaches. And so in 2 Corinthians, I want you to go there, 
And uh, you should be already there. But, uh, look at verse, let's look at verse 2 to start this. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now, Paul, you remember, Paul spent a year and a half at Corinth. So he has a lot invested in these people, and they should know better. And Paul has a burden for them. And we'll, we'll deal with that in the next two verses. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In verse 4, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And what is going on here? Loyalty to Jesus Christ is non-negotiable in a Christian life. Matthew twelve thirty, Jesus says it himself, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. There's no room, there's no straddling the fence. You're either with them or against them, and Jesus cuts it pretty clean, and he makes it quite clear and plain. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the very beginning of verse 4, it says, for if one comes and preaches, a better translation might be uh, sense. And I say that because at the writing of this letter, the false teachers have already infiltrated the Corinthian assembly. And that's why Paul is writing this. And so, there's, and, and again, he's not writing from some type of hypothetical situation, but false teachers are already there, and they have been basically welcomed in, you know, without any, you know, confrontation. Instead of being, being shown the door, they were actually embraced to some extent. And the Corinthians had given them a platform to really uh, promote their false teaching. Now, Paul summarizes the heresy of these false teachers under three different headings. And let me just uh, quickly run through these and just give you, a, you know, an idea of each of them. First of all, you notice that the false apostles, they preach another Jesus, it says. Uh, this is not the Jesus that Paul preached to them. You know, there, there are other Jesuses that are being promoted out there. Uh, second of all, these false apostles, they come in the power of a different spirit. They come in the power of a demonic spirit. They, are, they have not come in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like the, you remember the Corinthians, when they believed, they received the, the Holy Spirit at salvation. Well, these uh, individuals are really uh, demonic. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul speaks really of those who pay attention to deceitful spirits. You know, in these doctrines of demons. And so false teaching, it's a big deal in the Bible. You just don't let it slide. You don't just brush it under the carpet. It needs to be dealt with and, uh, and as swiftly as possible. In fact, in 1 John 4, 1, John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out of the world. Not a few but many false prophets have gone out in the world. And here we are, some 2,000 years later, and they're still with us, teaching and promoting false doctrine. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, Paul says, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. In fact, in Ephesians 4, 4, 
Uh, Paul says that we're not to be children tossed to and fro or back and forth by every wind of doctrine. James 1.8 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, we don't want to be unstable. We want to be grounded in the truth. We want to know what we believe and why we believe it. You know, Christians many times know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe it. Or they can't articulate well what they believe. And we should be able to do that. And so this is something that has kind of drove me to to do this uh, study here this morning. Now, the logical sequence, you know, if you're proclaiming a different Jesus and you're coming in the power of a different spirit, then obviously you're going to proclaim a different gospel. You're going to have a totally different message. And you know, Paul, how he feels about a different message. In Galatians 1.8, he says, But though we are angels from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. And those are strong words. There's no time to fool around and, oh, well, come on in and we'll let you preach a few Sundays. No, you, you nip it in the bud. You've got to deal with it, you know, instantly. But notice at the end of that verse 4, he says, you bear this beautifully. In other words, these false teachers had been basically show, you know, been allowed in. And they were promoting their false teaching. And Paul, I think he's using a little sarcasm here when he does this. And so the idea of another Jesus. And so this morning, that's what I want to focus on. Who is the real Jesus? We talk about Jesus, but you know what? There's a Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. The Mormons promote another Jesus. Uh, Muslims, you know, even promote another Jesus. I mean, who is Jesus Christ really? Is he truly God? Is he truly man? How does that all fit together? How does that come together? I mean, some people see Jesus as some glorified prophet or something, or a, a guru, if you would. You know, with a great following. Others see him as some kind of social or political revolutionary. And, uh, of course, there are those who see him as Michael the Archangel or a spirit child of God. And, of course, he's none of those. He's God Almighty in human flesh. And we're going to look at some of this. And, and again, in my Christian walk, is, you know, I've dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I even had a handful of Mormons I had to deal with over the years. You know, and, uh, you know, it's sad when a Christian cannot give an answer. But again, as I mentioned a moment ago, that's what drove me to this. You know, I, I found it interesting that, uh, uh, that 9 out of 10 Christians, according to Ron Rhodes, 9 out of 10 Christians do not know how to answer Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, what does that tell you about the church? I mean, that's, that's not good. And I don't mean by answering, by shutting the door in their face or ignoring them or saying, I don't want to talk to you. But we have the truth and we should be able to articulate it. You know, and so here, there are those who, who preach another Jesus, they come in a different spirit, and of course, they're going to have a different gospel. And they may use the same terms many times as we do, but they mean different things. 
I just talked to one uh, about a month or so ago coming to my driveway when I was working in a garage, and I said, look, come on in, you know, and uh, so we talked for a little bit. They like to leave really quick. When you, when, you, when you take lead of the conversation, they like to leave sometimes, and this guy was in a hurry for some reason, but anyway, uh, let's look at this, and again, as I mentioned before, many Christians know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe it. They don't know how to articulate what they believe. And so that's what we hopefully clear up some of that. Now, I can't go into every passage, but we will grab a handful of them. And hopefully, uh, I, I see these as very effective passages. And so we will use these. Uh, I find with Jehovah's Witness, and like I said, I'm going to use them as a kind of a sounding board because I think many of you uh, probably have dealt with them yourself. Uh, you might have uh, friends or family that are Jehovah's Witnesses. And so uh, hopefully this will be useful. Uh, oftentimes what I find with Jehovah's Witnesses, they highlight the humanity of Christ. Anyone who denies his deity, they highlight his humanity. I mean, if you stop and think about it, Jesus makes mention like in John chapter 5. There's a couple of uh, verses there where he talks about this, this idea in verse 19 and verse 30 where he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. It is the Father that works in me. I really believe that when Jesus walked the earth, that he became hungry. You remember when he was driven in the, the wilderness by the, the Holy Spirit. I mean, he was exhausted. And that's why he was tempted, you know, to, to turn the stones into bread. And of course... Jesus would not give in. So he, when, when he walked the earth, when he was hungry, he was really hungry. I believe when he was thirsty, he was really thirsty. And when he was tired at the back of that boat, I believe he was really tired. I don't think he was faking it. But we see the humanity of Christ in all this. In fact, in John 14, 28, Jesus makes mention. He says, I go to my father because my father is greater than I. And I truly believe that the Father was in a greater position than Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. And so these are things we, we need to, to deal with in our study because these are the verses that they highlight, whether they're Mormons or whatever, they focus on the humanity of Christ. Now, Scripture certainly highlights Christ's humanity, but it also highlights his deity. And there are quite a few passages that do this. Now, I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And again, mark your Bibles, write, write notes, write references there, because these you'll find can be very, very handy. And in Hebrews chapter 1, this passage here speaks specifically of the Lord Jesus. And it says, And when he again, speaking of the Father, brings the firstborn into the world... Now, I know Jehovah's Witnesses make a big deal out of the word firstborn. Uh, in the context, and in the context that they actually use it, because they like Colossians 1.15, where it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? See, Jesus was born. Jesus had a beginning. But if you follow the context, you'll find out it's talking about his preeminence. He's the one that's supreme. The priority in time. And I'm not going to get into that today. 
Maybe another lesson we could do that. But I want to focus on Hebrews 1 here and bring this uh, to light here. But again, in verse, verse uh, uh, 6 here, he says, When the Father brings the firstborn into the world, look, at, look what he says. He says, And let all the angels of God worship him. The Father telling basically creation to worship God. As the witnesses would say, Jehovah God. And they like to emphasize Jehovah. And that could be a whole other study why they focus on the name Jehovah. But for our study today, I'll use it. I don't have a problem. But again, Jesus is to be worshipped. Now, if I'm to be led to believe that, if Jesus is the greatest creation and he's to be worshipped like God, that bothers me. You know, it's got to give you pause, if you would. Why does he do that? And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Because this is very interesting when you put these together. Because then you have a real problem. Luke chapter 4. And here again, this is a temptation or the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. Remember the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness. And in verse 5 it says, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, it shall be yours. Notice verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what he does is he actually is quoting out of the Old Testament, out of Deuteronomy. And isn't that interesting? Jehovah God, if you would, in, uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, says, let all the angels of God worship Jesus. But then Jesus is saying back in Luke here that no one's to be worshipped but God. You, you, you see the little bit of play here that's, well, okay, what's going on here? Uh, are they, are they, is this a contradiction? Is something, what's going on here? That, you know, Jesus would say what he does and God would, the Father would say what he does. And it's interesting also because the word worship here is the same Greek word in both passages. You know, so what's going on? Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord that is my name and my glory will I not give to my, to another, neither my praise to graven images. God says, I will not give my praise to anyone yet. In Hebrews 1, he's giving his praise and adoration to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how does the Father command the universe to worship the Son? And now we can bring some other passages into this flow. And uh, one of the things you can do when you deal with the Jehovah's Witnesses Make them agree with you what the passage is saying because they love to run around to different verses. Keep them there so they, they don't get away from you. They're like a fish. You know, you can't hang on to them. And so you got to kind of grab control there and make them focus on the text and let them explain what it says because you can't do it. you got to come to the conclusion of, of what it, we just read. And in John chapter 20, and uh, you got to love this uh, John chapter 20, and I'll, I'll turn there so you can focus with me on this. And look at verse 27. 
you know, again, this is something that cannot be ignored. I mean, you cannot emphasize it too strongly. It's rich. Here we have Doubting Thomas. And here Thomas comes face to face with the risen Lord. And look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, remember they're in the upper room. Uh, Thomas missed the first appearing of Christ. And here he is, what, a week later. And Christ comes into their presence. Again, this is after the resurrection. And Jesus says here, uh, Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered, said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, I got a real kick out of Walter Martin. One time he, uh, some of you are familiar with him. He's uh, now, uh, he, my, he's been, he passed away, what, some 20 years or so ago. But, uh. He was telling, I remember one of his lectures I was at, he was telling a story of a Jehovah's Witness that he was uh, dealing with. And uh, he had took the, took the younger witness on, and dealt with him. He says, forget the older grounded Jehovah's, we'll deal with the young one. And so he began to focus on him. And of course, uh, the guys, I guess he's going nuts because he wanted to jump in and answer how, how to explain that. And his reason was, and it's really a bizarre one, his reason was, well, Thomas in the moment was all excited. He just couldn't believe what was going on. And he said, oh, my Lord, oh, my God. Now, hey, if you want to stick with that, that's your business. But that's not, that's not what's going on here. And then if you follow up with the next verse, I mean, remember Jesus is a rabbi. Remember they called him good teacher Rabboni, you know, so we, we know many of the people that followed him addressed him as Jesus, you know, addressed Jesus as a, as a rabbi. And it's interesting because in verse 29, Jesus says to him, because you have seen me and, and have believed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Why would Jesus not correct him theologically? What, just let that slide? When Peter called, uh, you know, the, Jesus the Christ, he didn't deny it. He didn't deny, deny the fact that he was the Messiah, the one that was to come to deliver Israel. He never denied that. And Thomas, it's like the light goes on and he recognizes who he's in the presence of. And it's Jesus Christ. Now, you can jump around and do all you, some assaults you want, but that's not going to change what's going on here. And go back to John chapter 5, because this is really good, <clears throat> good also. <clears throat> here we have Jesus healing a man. And, uh, I mean, and what comes out of this is really powerful stuff here. Jesus heals the man of Bethesda. You remember the pool? He couldn't get down to the water. You know, when the, when the angel stirred the water, he couldn't get anybody to take him down. And so anyway, Jesus comes along and uh, uh, he says in verse 14, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so, so nothing worse happens to you. And of course, the Jews, they rejected what happened. You know, they, they rejected everything Jesus did. They hounded his, you know, his steps. They, they were after him constantly. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, notice verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath. Now, breaking, Jesus never broke any laws. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Now, Jesus being God, he could loose the Sabbath restriction. If you look in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, you find out that the Sabbath was for man. It was not made for God. It was made for man. So Jesus loosed that Sabbath restriction. But this is what I want you to get. This is key. But also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the Greek word means exactly that. Equality with God. Jesus claiming to be equal with God. Now, I already mentioned John 14, 28, where Jesus says, I go to my father because my father is greater than I. Well, if there, how can the father be greater if Jesus is equal? And it's very interesting because there's actually two different Greek words, mazon and kreton. Mazon speaks of greater, and it speaks of position. At the time Jesus walked here on the earth, the father was in a greater position as Jesus Remember, I mentioned earlier that he, that he could do nothing on his own initiative. It was the Father working through him. So Jesus totally depends on the Father. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he, you know, he ministers. And that's why he could do the miracles he did. That's why he could know what people were thinking. It was everything that the Father reveals to him while he walked the earth. And so this idea of being greater, and then the word, uh, what is it, kreton, means better. If you go to Hebrews 1.4, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 1.4 says that Jesus was made so much better than the angels for the suffering of death. Better is a comparison of nature. Jesus was always better than angels. But Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he should taste death for every man. Jesus is better, but yet he's lower than the angels. And it was because in his incarnation, he, you know, set that all aside and became a total man. He functioned as a man. He functioned as you and I. Yet, as we'll see in a moment, all that while he was still God, God in human flesh. And so this is the incarnation. This is how this gets developed. It's interesting also in John 10, 33, remember the Jews, it says, we, they took up stones to sow them, and they says, for a good work we stone thee not, but because of blasphemy, because thou being a man, makest thyself to be God. They got the picture clear. They understood what was going on. And, that, and of course the Jews in the presence of blasphemy. Man you deal with it. And I want you to turn to Philippians 2. This is what you know, scholars call the kenosis passage. Uh, from the Greek word ekonosin. And here Paul he wants to emphasize something Jesus did. And, of course, many like to distort this passage, but I'll tell you what, it is, it is a doozy 
when used properly. In verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, the attitude, he was speaking of Christ's humility in the previous verses. And he was talking about a humble attitude. But notice what he says, Who although he existed in the form of God. The word existed means like, who remaining in the form of God is the idea. Never ceasing to be. And a lot of our modern translations have really brought it out clear. I like the NIV. It says, who being in very nature God. Because that's the way the text is to be translated. That's what it means. And that's what the word is trying to say. In other words, when Jesus walked the earth, when, when you know, when he... he you know, as he walked, as he was never ceasing to be God, you know, he, he never stopped being God while he was on the earth. He walked around, and of course, he was deity in the flesh at the same time. But notice another thing. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped for. And of course, Jesus never used his deity to, to take advantage. There was times, we remember, they were in the, uh, on the lake, and all of a sudden they appeared on shore. Well, he doesn't do that. That was just an ex, probably an exceptional occasion. Normally he walked place to place. But again, Jesus doesn't, you know, strive to use his deity to his advantage. And so we see his humanity being expressed as he lived on the earth. But what has happened here is Jesus has voluntarily set aside his role to act as God. And so that's why he never ceased to be God. And again, we already observed that he existed in the form of God. And again, in his humility, he totally depended on the Lord. He lays aside his role to act as God. Uh, Now, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll come back to Philippians, so keep your finger there. I want to just bring this in again. I mentioned it already, but in verse 4, it says, Having been made so much better than angels, as he hath by inheritance, uh, has a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Now again, this is God, the Father, speaking to the Son. Today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And verse 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Here the Father is calling the Son God, who remaining, remember, go back to Philippians 2. This is who remaining in the form of God thought it not robbery or or something to be grasped after to be equal with God. But look at Philippians 2, 7, and this this is key. But emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Echinosin, that's the word there. And that is the marvel of the incarnation, God becoming man. He emptied himself of his right to act as God while here on the earth. That's why we see him being anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit early on in his ministry because he depended on God the Father and the working of the Holy Spirit throughout his time on the earth. And you would say, what is he emptying of himself? Well, he emptied himself of his right. You know, his, 
independency, really, to exercise his attributes of deity. That's what Jesus emptied himself of. Yet still fully God, but yet fully man. And so he never acted as God. It was the Father acting through him, through the the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when you put these things together, they're, they're strong. I mean, Jesus completely depended on the Father while he walked on the earth. In John 12, 49 and 50, he makes mentions, even the words that I speak, they're not mine, they're the Father's. What, Jesus don't know how to talk? Well, he does. But while he was here on the earth, there was a total surrender, a total submission to the Father. And that's why the Father was greater than Jesus while he walked the earth. In Matthew 28, 18, you remember when Jesus came up and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. We see this restoring of authority. What he laid down in the incarnation after the resurrection, he picked back up. And of course, it seems that in the ascension that everything was fully restored. And I'll tell you, you cannot minimize this. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in fashion, many humbled himself. And then in verse uh, Philippians 2, 9 and 10 and 11, it says, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things of heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. That's Isaiah 43, 23. Jehovah God, if you would, says, I am the first. I am the name that is above every name, and every knee will bow to me. But yet, Paul applies it to Christ, that every knee will bow to Christ, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I mean, that's, you, you can't run from it. And they really like Colossians 2.9. You can always put this in as a side note. It says, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. And how does that happen? If Jesus is not God, how how, how does this work? And you can't explain it. You can't explain it unless you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is both God and man in completeness. And I mentioned earlier the marvel of the incarnation. I mean, how do you explain it? How do you write it out on paper, a little formula that explains it? You can't. I like Job 11, 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the the, the limits of the Almighty? Well, of course we can't, unless he reveals everything. I mean, I like the fact that God is God. Because if I could figure out God, then I figure I got a pretty shallow God. I'm glad that my my God is way beyond me, that he is infinitely beyond me and everything. And I want to go to Revelation. I was wondering if I was going to get to this. I chopped out some things just so I could get to this because I think this is critical. And I want you to go to Revelation chapter 1. This is a book that they like, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And... uh, 
everything really kind of centers around the phrase Alpha and Omega. And I'll tell you, uh, this is, again, another powerful thing when you follow through a sequence of these verses. Revelation chapter 1, the phrase Alpha and Omega, and again, this is important. It, again, emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here's Alpha and Omega. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, this is Jehovah God. I mean emphatically, this is Jehovah God. Yep, yep, this is Jehovah God. And then we, we keep going with this, you know. And it's also interesting to note that they will agree with you, and that's, that's a marvelous thing. But you know what? It creates a problem because you know what? The Bible also tells me that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. How, how, how does that work? Watch, Revelation 21. And uh, please turn there. This is, this is rich because 21 and 22 have a lot to say here about this. <clears throat> Revelation 21, and look at verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Look at verse 4. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, who's... uh, says they will make all things new. Well, he who sits on the throne is, is what's going on. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts the spring of, of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Alpha and Omega is Jehovah God. Again, A Jehovah's Witness, really, they'll agree with you. Now, if you turn to Revelation chapter 22, let's follow this same thought. Verses 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I mean, the identification is clear. The same person uh, is speaking through all this. But the identification of the person becomes very clear two verses later. Look at verse 16. I, who? Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I mean, Jesus Christ identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, back in verse uh, 13, 12 and 13. And it all comes down to this. I mean, remember that phrase, Alpha and Omega, that we've seen in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1? It was the Father. But the strength of this, before we go back there, I want you to look at a couple of verses. Notice verse 7 of Revelation 22. 
Behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. I mean, who's the one coming quickly? Alpha and Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 13. And who is this one? Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus has to be God. And how you can fit that in your brain, I don't know. But Jesus has to be God. We know the Father is God. You know, we might say Son of God, but we can say God the Son. Because if you don't do that, what are you going to do? You're going to have two first and two last? Is Jesus the second first? Doesn't sound right, does it? There's only one Alpha and Omega. And I give you Isaiah 43:23, or Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Jehovah's Witnesses like to tell me and in their theology that Jesus was created. That Jesus was created and that he created all the other things. But that's a big problem. It doesn't work that way. You can't have. He's first and last. He's Alpha and Omega. And that's the point John is stressing. He's God. There's only one first and one last. There's only one Alpha and Omega. And there's only one, one beginning and the end. And yet the scriptures tells us that both are God. And here, uh, John, you know, he's in this vision. He's caught up. You go back to Revelation chapter 1. He turns to the voice that speaks to him. This is verses 12 and 13. And you remember there's the seven golden lampstands. And then in the midst of all this, we see one like the Son of Man. If you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness, he would tell you, well, that's Jesus. Amen. It's Jesus. So we know that it's Jesus who is speaking. Okay, and so here's John. He turns to this voice that speaks to him. And verse 17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and says, Do not fear, I am the first and the last. Again, we see Jesus here identifies himself as the first and the last. We already seen in chapters 21 and 22 that Jesus is the first and the last, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. <clears throat> and then look at the, the next verse. Verse 18, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The question is, when did Jehovah God ever die? How did the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega ever die? I mean, it was Jesus of Nazareth that went to the cross to die for our sins. He is the one who, as Philippians 2, uh, 7 says, emptied himself of his role to act as God and depended on the Father. It was Christ that did this. I mean, when you bring these together, I mean, they're a rich truth. I mean, ask, you can ask them, when did Jehovah... God ever died? Well, he never died. When did the Holy Spirit die? Well, the Holy Spirit never died, but Jesus did. But yet he's Alpha and Omega. I got a couple of minutes, so I want to go to 
uh, Colossians chapter 1. I noticed when they used to come to my doorstep, they really liked this verse. And I'm just going to give a a real quick uh, synopsis of this. I can't go into a whole lot of details, but we will grab a few things. But Philippians, uh, let's see here. Um, Let's look at verse 15. Or Colossians, rather. Did I say Philippians? Colossians. Colossians 1.15. That's what happens when it's not in your notes. No. Colossians 1.15. Notice what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I mentioned earlier that they make a big deal out of firstborn. Why? Because they believe Jesus was created. Now look at verse 16. For by him are all things created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, if, you don't want to trust their New World Translation because they went in there with the little ink pens and they dabbled with uh, a lot of the verses to defend their position. So you don't want to use their translation. You know, get a recognized translation, whether it's a King James, because they, they printed the King James Bible in the, their Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. So, And I'm assuming they're still doing it to this day. I know they've always done it in the past. So you can use that. You can use even one, you know, a new American standard. That's what I'm reading from this morning. But you do not want to go with their translation. What they have done is they put the word other in brackets. So Colossians 1.16 says, For by one... For by him were all other things created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And by him were all, you know, all things were created through him. All other things were created through him and by him. And he exists before all other things. That's what their translation says. And that word other doesn't belong there. And you can point that out to them because it has brackets around it. Now their response is, well, it makes the text clearer. But the problem is, is it changes what the text is saying. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or all things consist. There's only two categories, God and creation. If he exists before all things, then he's not one of the things created. And that's what's a a clincher in this. And by the way, look at verse 18, just to give you the idea of preeminence. Firstborn doesn't mean necessarily the first one born. You remember in, uh, what is it, Matthew one twenty three, Jesus brought forth her firstborn son and called his son Jesus, you know. Uh, sometimes it does mean firstborn, but sometimes it means, uh, you know, preeminent one. You know, the supreme one, the, the, the priority in time, if you would. And that's the idea here. Notice verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning of the, the firstborn from the dead. Again, uh, preeminence. Jesus raised other people from the dead while he was on the earth. So how does he become firstborn from the dead? Well, being uh, preeminent he is. I mean, it's on his resurrection that all resurrections are possible. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For he is the father of the good father, the father's good pleasure. For in, all, for in him full, all the fullness dwells. 
And then he talks about reconciliation. And as you go through there, you see the idea that, that he is the preeminent one. And that's the idea. Prototokos, preeminence, supreme one. Priority in time. These are different ways you can use the word. And so Christ, when they throw these verses, and again, they like to throw them and they move on. They want to just overwhelm you when they come. Uh, I, I remember hearing Walter Martin say that the average Jehovah's Witness can turn the average Christian into a doctrinal pretzel in about 30 seconds. Well, I wasn't going to let that happen to me. (laughs) And uh, so the Bible teaches that Jesus is both God and man in completeness. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your rich blessings in our lives. And Father, help us to take these truths with us to give, uh, to help solidify our foundation in you, Lord, and to give you the praise and the glory for the things even we do not understand and how marvelous you are. In Jesus' name, amen.